Welcome to our Grandparents' Teachings, a storytelling program hosted by Chuck Miller in collaboration with the Sitka Tribe of Alaska, Art Change, and KCAW. This storytelling program will help keep Clinkett stories alive through community education. Join us the first Tuesday of every month from 7 to 8 p.m. as we celebrate the rich cultural heritage of this land. Welcome everyone to Hatlil Kohas Ha'it Tuat, our grandparents' teachings. Today we have some content revolving around uh, the Khan, the peacemaker, which is a traditional native status in our Tlingit community. These people were very revered amongst their peers. Um, they were leader amongst leaders, and they were utilized specifically for peacemaking between the clans and outside villages also. And we're also going to talk with Kayla Pook. And she's going to be speaking with all of you about her role in restorative justice practices here in Sitka as she uh, works at The Cloud, which is our, basically our teen center here in town. And then we're also going to hear some archive audio footage of peacemaking ceremony that I recorded of my late grandfather's ceremony that was done in 1992. And we're also going to hear from Charlie Joseph Sr. Uh, singing a peacemaking ceremonial song that would have been used long ago. And you'll hear at the very end, which I did not mention, which will be this words they go, goo, goo, wah. You'll hear that at the end of the song. Just so you know, anytime you hear that, that is a uh, peacemaking song. And I thought I would throw that in there. So I hope that you enjoy everything that you will be listening to today. Yeah, 
Hello, everyone. You are going to be listening to a very unique piece of audio recording that I actually did personally for my late grandfather, Edward David James's peacemaking ceremony, where the Raven Sea Pigeon Clan, the Dakhtaintan of Huna, uh, named him their peacemaker. Uh, this was back in October 17, 1992. I recorded this on uh, audio tape, and it's the only recording that I know of that I've ever heard that actually records a peacemaking ceremony. Uh, and I've heard a lot of recordings throughout my life, and blessed to have been able to go through archives of Sikha Native Education Program and personal recordings from my auntie Lily White of Huna, uh, who provided me a lot of memorial ceremonial tapes, but I've never heard a recording specifically on peacemaking. This peacemaking ceremony, for those of you that don't know, uh, long ago, uh, in ancient days, and to an extent nowadays, uh, there were people called the peacemakers, the Khan. And the Khan in our language means the deer. The deer is a very peaceful animal, and that's why our people use the deer as a symbol of peace. And people that were selected to be peacemakers were very revered amongst their peers. They were very well respected. And if, if of the raven moiety needed a peacemaker, they would ask the opposite tribe, their in-laws, uh, a person of high caste nobility that had peacemaking abilities to be their peacemaker. And they went through rituals and ceremony. I remember my, my late grandfather telling me before the peacemaking ceremony in Huna, he told me that he had a fast for four days. And the only thing he was allowed to partake of was devil's club tea or juice. He drank that for four days straight. And on the night before the, the, the party was to be held that made him a peacemaker, he told me that he actually had to bathe in the devil's club tea to purify his mind and his body. He also told me that he was not allowed to lay with my grandmother in bed to purify himself so that no impurities were to be a part of him as he became the Dakhtaintan Sea Pigeon Clan's peacemaker. This was very serious business. He did not mess around. He took it very seriously. 
there are things that you would see at this this memorial that you cannot see, obviously see through audio, but it was very unique experience for me. And listening to the archives, I got goosebumps listening to the speakers speak, and how they spoke a long time ago, back in the 90s. And there's barely any English in this recording, which is awesome. And I hope that you enjoy what you hear today and the strength that comes from it. I'm not able to translate everything for you, but I thought listening to the language itself is empowering, and I thought you would enjoy this unique experience um, through the airwaves. I hope that you enjoy. The <laughs>
As you're listening to our recording today, our archive recording, on this peacemaking uh, ceremonial audio, you'll hear the following people speaking. My late uncle, my grandfather's uh, first cousin, uh, Dickie Dalton of Huna, who was a Takhtaintan leader, who was running the memorial, running the peacemaking ceremony. Also, you'll hear George Jim uh, of Angoon, who was a Wushkitan shark clan leader. And then also his in-law, Matthew Fred Sr., who was a Deshitan leader and spokesperson. These folks are all deceased now, but they are very powerful back in their day with the way they were speaking to everyone. As you're listening to the recording, you would hear um, them speaking to the fact that my grandfather was going to be a peacemaker, and they were encouraging him and giving him strength and speaking about their ancestors and their ancestors' regalia, the ancient pieces that would give strength to my grandfather so that he can be a peacemaker for the Takhtain Tang clan. Uh, on, the, on the other side that you will be hearing, the other recording, I felt the need to include the women that are speaking um, also. Uh, you won't hear too many women speaking in any ceremonies because uh, usually the men were the, uh, the spokespersons. Uh, but on this recording, I really felt the need to include my Auntie Lily White of Huna and my grandmother Sarah, who is my, my, my grandfather's wife. They give encouraging words also to my grandfather and speak of the regalia that belongs to our clan. And I thought it was very important. And as I was listening to it, I could actually see them talking and, and you can hear my grandfather respond in kind to them. As a peacemaker, my grandfather was given the name by the Takhtain Tan, Tsarkhan Guwakan, which means Mount Fairweather Peacemaker. And every time a person was given the name of a, of a peacemaker, they would always include the word Guwakan, which means deer. Tsarkhan means Mount Fairweather. So that was the name that they gifted him. So you'll hear it in, this, in the recordings, Tsarkhan Guwakan. ฉันตะทานิฉุนเลอะเทกตะเตนทาเลาทูนะเกยีกัวคาเลอะยะซัสกลาตัวคาอะจัวเทสอยีวกชีตะฮอตกุยเซกวสกีตะเทสะกะต
As I sat there in front row watching the ceremonial go on with my grandfather becoming the peacemaker, I'm sitting there with my aunties and my uncles, and from a perspective of watching it, I'd like to explain to you what I saw. As my grandfather was becoming a peacemaker, there's a specific dance that they would do. He had what they call bodyguards, which were of the raven moiety, taktentan, sea pigeon clam, two men stood on each side of him so that no harm comes to him. He wore a specific headband that had two feathers going on both sides of his head. Uh, they're red feathers. They symbolize the deer's antlers. He crosses his arms in front of him, and they do a specific type of dance, and both bodyguards extend their arms around him on each side of him. So when he dances, no harm comes to him. I remember that very specifically. And that is a part of the peacemaking ceremony. In ancient days, when our people used to fight against each other, peace had to be made. And I was told by Ethel Mackinnon that long ago, when opposite clans fought against each other, they would take the raven peacemaker, they would have two eagle men lift him up on his shoulders, on their shoulders, and then the eagle would have two raven helpers pick him up, and they would walk to a place where peace was going to be made. That was the ancient days. And so any disputes of long ago were settled through the peacemaker, and you had to pay him money to do specific type of dance and come up with solutions to create peace between the clans. Next, you'll be hearing from our, our guest speaker, Ms. Kayla Pook who is one of our local uh, Shlingit uh, ladies here in town. And she has been uh, kind enough to come and talk to all of us about restorative justice. And also, you've also heard a little bit about the peacemaking ceremony. And uh, as listening to the peacemaking and hear about uh, this upcoming comments about restorative justice, uh, when, I, when I listened to Kayla talk, it was more interesting to find out that the peacemakers is very similar to restorative justice, but with the exception of peacemakers was the one person you would go to to help create peace between the clans. And restorative justice is where people come together, notice an issue, and they utilize the group as a uh, helpful way of coming up with a solution. So it's interesting to see the differences between the two, but the goals are the same. So I hope that you enjoy what uh, Kayla has to share with all of you. Welcome to our guest speaker here today is Ms. Kayla Pook. Welcome. Uh, my name is Kayla Pook. Uh, my Tlingit name is Dasnech, and I am Dasloedi, just eagle killer whale. Um, I grew up in Sitka, left for a few years, lived in Seattle, and I've been back in Sitka for the last five years. I, man, I think that one of the hardest things for me actually as of recently is figuring out the relationship between um, peacemaking, restorative justice, and Tlingit culture. And so I've been trying to tie together some of the experiences that I had with Bertha, Karis, my grandma, and my mom, um, I think from the Tlingit side, but also 
like the matrilineal perspective and how um, just how like punishment was handed down. Punishment is such a like strong word, but it is that's how we view, I think, harm is we use that term and of punishment and it becomes this really heavy subject. Almost like a teachable moment. Yeah. Basically, but not quite so much punishment, just being able to teach people not to do things a particular way and try to do it another way. Yeah. Punishment seems so harsh. It does. And I even when I so I work at the teen center here, the cloud and a lot of the, you know, the kids will have some sort of harm done to them, whether it's words spoken or actions and they you know, immediately ask me, like, how how are they going to be punished? How is this person going to be punished? And I'm like, they're actually, that's not how we do it here. Um, and we do it in a really restorative practice. And um, when I see, I guess, an escalation happen or harm done, I see that person and the whole picture and through the relationships that I've been able to create with these youth, I can usually see a bigger picture of like why something might have happened. Um, I don't always have the like all the answers, mm-hmm. but it's so helpful in restorative practices to have relationship. And I think that's something that like indigenous peoples have been really good at for you know <laughs> thousands of years mm-hmm. is the relationship between family members, the relationship between tribes. Um, and how we lift each other up in our grief, in our harm, in our traditions. Um, I love that when somebody from my clan passes away or walks into the woods, you know, the Raven clan comes in and does everything for us. And we just get to sit in a place of grief. I don't see that in very many places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way of, I think, restorative practices doesn't just speak into the justice system, I think it just speaks to hurt. And that's where I see it carry the most power, which is pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious uh, what you've experienced in your generations before you, how, I guess, consequences were handed out or how you saw um, things handled when harm was done. In the family system? Yeah. Um, usually, the it was uh, like if you really wanted some serious action, the grandmother was usually the one that <laughs> talked to everybody because yeah. you don't mess with grandma. Grandma's the law. Uh, it takes a village to raise a child of the real thing growing up here mm-hmm. in this community. And, um, yeah, I think chores and consequences along those lines of not, you know, learning your lesson and... Uh, My mother used to always say, you know, it's okay to make a mistake, Chuck, but if you don't learn from it, I'm going to really start worrying about you. So trying to learn from those mistakes. Um, And then the ancient days, long time ago, you you make a mistake with your words, uh, you'd have to pay for it, literally with money or some sort of form of payment to the other tribe, whoever it was that you offended. Uh, And sometimes actions also, you had to pay for too, like if... You know, maybe my good friend and I got into a fight and we disagreed and I I was in the wrong, but I hit him and, you know, that eye for an eye mentality, um, that's the way it was a long time ago. And if I was in the wrong and let's say he talked to his uncles, his maternal uncles, and my maternal uncle was informed of this, uh, they would meet together and they would talk about it. And if I was clearly in the wrong, they would, uh, you know, if I didn't have enough money to take that mark off his face. Um, they would literally mark my face with mm-hmm. a, like I got, I would get hit. Mm-hmm. So that's how it was done in ancient days prior to contact and probably when there was contact too. So, and then between the clans a long ago, they used to be, um, disputes were settled with uh, peacemakers. These were called uakon, which is translated as deer because a deer is a very peaceful animal. Mm-hmm. And that's why our people modeled that, uh, used that as our um person that would create peace between the clans so those are just some of the things i think of when when you ask me that question Hmm. so so if you were to like utilize um uh restorative justice like when you use it at the teen the 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 teen center there um 
what would that look like? Like if somebody came to you and said, hey, I need to help with this, or somebody said this to me, what was the, what's the process look like for somebody that doesn't know anything about this restorative justice process? Yeah. Um, I think that a, a large part of it comes from the space in general that we create is a safe space. And that's a really important definition for people to understand and what um, what that looks like. I think a lot of our youth don't have the privilege of having a safe space to go to 24 hours a day. So we really try and create mm-hmm. that environment at the cloud, um, our teen center. And so we have kind of a list of like expectations and that sounds weird, but uh, what's the word? I think it is expectations, but it's basically just a list of um, rights and responsibilities. That's what it is. Um, where we have the teens' rights and responsibilities and then the staff's rights and responsibilities. And that's basically like what you're entitled to in this space as a human being. And that comes from anywhere from like to be able to have access to food and like toiletries and warm clothes to um, having your personal boundaries respected and um and that's like your physical your emotional your financial having those boundaries respected and so the staff is trained in those experiences so that they can keep an eye out for when those rights and responsibilities are I guess neglected by other youth which is a really natural thing for youth to not have those rights and responsibilities understood um, I don't think that our society does a very good job of teaching us how to live within safe spaces and how mm-hmm. to be peacemakers. I think there's a lot of hostility and anger um, when it comes to your rights and responsibilities. And so when I'm violated, a natural response is anger. And so that moves into the idea of these restorative circles where we basically have a circle with whoever the harm was done by and whoever the harm was done to with like one or two kind of moderators. And so say it's two teens that one of them has been verbally violated by the other, whether it's through it can, it's, it's honestly really simple circumstances too. And just like somebody said something really hurtful that was not appropriate. Mm -hmm. So then staff has the ability to recognize like who those youth are, who needs to be within the circle? We try and make it so it's not like adult heavy or youth heavy. We try and keep them very balanced so that everybody feels safe. I think that's important too. When kids get in trouble, they oftentimes will like walk into an office with like three adults. And naturally, this kid is going to climb into a shell. They're not going to want to respond. They're probably going to lie. They're probably going to, you know, just it's super uncomfortable mm-hmm. and not fair. And so. We try and balance it. If there's multiple friends involved, we get the friends involved in the circles as well. Um, it's really important that their voice is heard. Mm-hmm. And then we bring some values to the table. What do they want out of the circle? Um, whether it's like non-judgment, it's whatever sta- like is said here stays here. Um, and then we go through a series of questions that just address the harm. And so like from your perspective, what happened? What was your what was your experience when this was going down? And each person gets a turn to talk. We usually have a talking piece that goes around. Um, they can express what was done to them or what they think they might have done to others. And in a way that others can't interrupt, they have the piece, they get to express, and then it goes back to like the, I forget what the name, I mean, I guess the moderator, there's a different word for it, but... Mm-hmm. Um, the person facilitating the circle can then ask the next question. And it's not necessarily like, and they usually will validate the experience of everybody in the circle as well. And then we just continue on that cycle until everybody's stories are heard. And then hopefully we get to a place where we can then start asking like, what would be helpful in addressing the harm in the future? And like, how can we come back to a space where we can all be safe together? And there's been instances where like youth don't want to engage in the circle. And that's totally they're right but that is like a requirement to come back into a space to a safe Mm -hmm. space is to engage in that process because it's so important for and even for victims it's a really hard space to Mm -hmm. occupy as well and um i don't think that we do a very good job of listening to people's stories we don't do a very good job of listening in general Mm -hmm. and i think that that's something that we've learned really well from, from elders and 
listening to stories and the amount of times I've sat in potlatches or in my grandmother's living room or wherever, um, where we spend a lot of time just listening. And I think that's a value that we're lacking pretty significantly in our Mm -hmm. culture right now. I know that when you're talking about circles, I know that when I worked for Ravensway and Bill Brady Healing Center, mostly Ravensway, uh, I know that we use circles quite a bit, and mm-hmm. circles are less confrontational. Mm-hmm. They're they're more you're more on an equal playing field as everybody else. Yeah, and you're not like face to face with each other, like you said in a small room with three other adults intimidating you. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a really good part that I really I liked hearing about, and I do like the the fact that you're taking into account the things that your grandmother taught you or what you observed growing up in our Shringit community of how our people did things and that. Uh, I'm assuming that you're bringing some of that to the table when you do restorative justice practices at the cloud. Yeah, I try to. I think recognizing that like the circle process didn't didn't originate in, you know, like YS or the cloud or in schools. It it originated in indigenous culture and like in other communities outside of Sitka. And so it's not something that we have ownership to but have been shared with. And mm. it allows us to, I think, learn from people that are similar, but from completely different upbringings. And I think that's really special too. And I would love to see, um, I think that's one of the things that I've recognized in in like the things that I'm really passionate about are like um, being an indigenous person and breaking the cycles of trauma and violence in our youth, um, the arts and specifically like indigenous arts and then mental health. And so my like next journey is figuring out how to intersect all, of the, all those things. And it's really hard because there's not really a framework. So I think that there's a way to do it with like the things that are really the traditions that are really specific to our culture mm-hmm. while also being able to integrate things that we've learned from others mm-hmm. into a space that helps us break the cycles of historical trauma and violence in our young people and community. So, mm-hmm. yeah. With the amount of time that you've been at the cloud and and utilizing these tools, what what do you would you say like a success rate is of these restorative justice practices mm. in the cloud? And uh, what do you think? Eighty percent, sixty percent. What do you think? I um, success is hard to measure when what we're looking for is just progress. Like we're looking for strengths, and so when something happens. Um, we look at how frequently it's happening, how it changes as it happens, because the likelihood of somebody having a verbal outburst and then never having it again is not likely. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. it's never gonna happen yeah. um in in a day or two or even a couple weeks. And so um I get to talk to a lot of parents and thankfully the parents that I engage with have been are really in tune with the youth that I've been able to work with. And so um you know, we talk about how this happened and last time, um, you know, they stormed out and just left and didn't come back. And this time they stayed. They were really escalated, but I was able to engage them. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to de-escalate before they left the building. And mm-hmm. so it's looking at it from that perspective rather than I think a lot of times we just want to look and be like, they're not getting any better. Like Mm -hmm. they're having outbursts in the classroom like four Mm -hmm. times a week. And then it's, you know, months later and it's like, well, how often now are they having outbursts? And it's like three times a week. And it's like, that's progress though. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we like to measure progress in that way. I think we want to see like really quick results. And with our young people who come with developmental challenges, like they're experiencing so much and just like growing up mm-hmm. um their environmental challenges and then their societal challenges and i i guess i i speak from like a youth perspective i i probably will only work with youth for the rest of my life mm-hmm. because i they're so malleable to me and i would love to see us break cycles in that mm-hmm. generation and so um with but with that comes the challenge of like all the other experiences that we're having i so yeah. a lot of it just is relationship and compassion and like walking through those really tough seasons with kids um and i think that we have to do that with adults too Mm. and it's more challenging because they haven't had the they've had 10 20 30 50 extra years of that cycle repeating so Mm -hmm. yeah so as a strong tlingit woman (laughs) who grew up here in sitka and has roots in angoon um what do you think you could do uh from your standpoint 
you know, it sounds like it's a really good program. Sounds like it works well. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that you think that you would like to incorporate more of a traditional uh, aspect, if you will, from the Tlingit perspective, the value system? What are some things that you hope to infuse to make the restorative justice program a little bit bigger and brighter so that it, it expands for what your goals would be and maybe t expand a little bit on what you see in the future? Yeah, um, I have learned through this process of working in the teen center um, and then my own journey as an artist and how that helped my mental health pretty significantly that um, the intersections of art and therapy are really necessary in the work that I want to do. And so um, I'm in the process right now of applying for a school that allows me to get my undergrad in expressive arts and um, humanities. And they are also allowing me to the part of the program is require, requiring me to take, I think, like 18 credit hours of studio mm -hmm. arts. And I asked them if it would be okay if I did those through UAA in Northwest Coast Art and got a minor in Northwest Coast Art. And they are working with me to try and make that happen. But I really would like to open a um, like community art center where um, we're offering all sorts of arts to people so that it's accessible to everybody, but also specific, um, specifically like group therapy for mm. young indigenous youth um, to work on Northwest Coast Arts um, as a way of healing, but also as a way of like learning how to be self-sustainable. I think that there's a time and place for traditional therapy and sitting with a therapist and talking through things and having somebody validate your experience is so valuable. Um, but I also have seen a lot of value in non-traditional therapy and especially how it works with um, indigenous youth and indigenous people. And I think that one of our, one of the things that I've seen that's really valuable in engaging youth is like, I love to like work on puzzles when I'm talking to a kid or yeah. draw alongside them or something because they don't have to look me in the eyes. And that's such a scary thing for somebody who's going through a really traumatic or harmful experience. And so um, I want to be able to create a space where, like, people can work alongside others and learn how to um, experience how healing art can be, but also find roots in their Tlingit culture um, and then hopefully find pathways to healing through that. I've talked to several other, like, youth centers in the U.S. Um, one of them is a restorative justice center in um, Montana, where I talked to the, the, I think he was like the manager that <clears throat> of the place, and we were chatting about what their process is. And he gets referrals from the youth court, and they come and it's they do art, they do like community service projects, and um, use al alternative ways of reforming youth as an alternative to the juvenile justice system, and yeah. so. Wonderful. I yeah. I just I really hope that we can continue to make those spaces for our young people. And I think the way that we talk about our young people can be pretty harmful too. And I don't think that our community realizes how. I think the way that we talk about young people on like Facebook, I see them like mm. sick of chatters, and the mm. way that we like really like to criminalize our youth, um, and post pictures of youth doing things or whatever. And it's like you could have such a more you could have a much more significant impact if you go and engage the youth in a way that's compassionate than if you're just like another adult screaming mm. in their face or yelling at them for what they're doing. They need to be, they need to know that what they're doing is wrong, but in a way that's as a community, we're like lifting those youth up and not using shame as a tool mm. to change people. This doesn't, in my experience, mm -hmm. shame has not been a helpful tool right. <laughs> for my own growth. So if you were to, um, uh, you know, with the information you shared with our listeners, and if there's something that somebody that just jumped on and started listening to the program, maybe halfway through, what is something that you really want the listener to understand about restorative justice and what you do here in the community of Sitka? Hmm. How would you summarize that? Hmm. I would say that our, the way that justice is served in the West is not a way to form rehabilitated people mm -hmm. and that in order to rehabilitate people we have to come in 
with a lot, a significant amount of compassion and kindness Mm -hmm. and patience and understanding that healing and growth is not linear and that what's easy for one person to change and manipulate in themselves within several months or a year could take the person next to them 20 years and Mm -hmm. they could have gone through a similar experience. Um, And so something my dad and I talk about frequently of what it looks like to really care for people. And I've had that modeled a lot in my family's home of just that we've always had people coming in and out. Um, We've always had different people at our dinner tables and some people have been there for 10 years and some people will come for a year and then leave. And um, it's just this really powerful act of love at the end of the day to be able to um, have the patience to sit with somebody who's growing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So patience probably is one of the biggest pieces of advice I have for people. It's hard. Right on. Yeah. Well, excellent. Uh, uh, For those of you that just joined us, this is Miss Kayla Pook who has joined us today, um, who works at the cloud and works with teens and talks, and she just got done talking about restorative justice practices and how that uh, is utilized here in Sitka. And we really want to thank you for your time here today. Gunashish, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it meant a lot to hear what you had to share with all of us. Thank you, Ms. Kayla. Gunashish. Thanks for joining us to learn from our grandparents' teachings. Stay tuned next month as we share more stories, songs, and traditional ways of living. If you have a story you'd like to share, please reach out at storytelling at kcaw.org. We'd love to hear from you. Technical support for this program was made possible in part with funding by the Rasmussen Foundation, administered by the Alaska State Council of the Arts, and Art Change, Inc.